Hi everyone, my name is Christian Rallone. I'm the co-president of Wharton FinTech and your host. Today, we have Mary Catherine Later, CEO of BlackRock's Digital Wealth Group. BlackRock is the largest global asset manager with over six trillion assets under management for retail and institutional clients across a range of strategies. MC has been at BlackRock since 2015 and received her JD MBA from Harvard University. MC, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start off at the top, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background prior to BlackRock. As you said, I uh, spent a long time in school, but before that I was an investor. I started out uh, as a clean tech investor at Goldman Sachs and became really interested in the intersection of innovation, disruption by small companies in uh, industries dominated by incumbents that are governed by regulation and where understanding that regulation and the opportunities that law and regulation create can allow for um, growth. And so that sounds kind of complex, but uh, I started out sort of, like I said, in clean tech in a time when there was a lot of excitement around new solar technologies, new uh, energy efficiency technologies, and a number of really large companies that sort of dominated the space and dominated distribution, and a lot of uncertainty about how government played a role. And while I wasn't deeply passionate about, uh, about you know, enter the, the details between different solar panels, because I wasn't an electrical engineer by background, I realized that those dynamics were very much present in financial services and had always been interested in how you make the economy work for people from the private sector. And so when I went back to grad school, I got interested in fintech and how sort of fintech ideas, fintech products can help deliver on deliver on that sort of objective. How do you make the economy work for people using technology uh, as applied in financial services? And so I started a fintech startup. Its mission was to deliver benefits to independent contractors. So this was when there was the growth of the on-demand economy in 2013, 2014. Uber was worth only $15 billion. And already it seemed like the gig economy was sort of taking the world by storm. So I was concerned that that didn't seem like a good deal for workers. And that it, actually, in America at least, we have a social contract with our employer. That's part of our really employment contract and, and, and supported by public policy that, that you need, your employer helps pay for your health insurance and your retirement coverage. And so I started a fintech startup that essentially helped independent contractors plan for retirement, uh, get health care, manage their taxes. Um, and that was a great, a great ride. The timing for it wasn't quite right. And so I'd worked at BlackRock um, in Asia briefly. I had a longtime mentor here. I knew I loved the people here. I knew that the company cared about its mission is building better financial futures. And so I came here and I started working on our technology growth strategy uh, with Rob Goldstein, who was the chief operating officer, is still the chief operating officer, and was one of the people who founded BlackRock's fintech platform, Aladdin. That was an amazing experience. And we launched a bunch of stuff that uh, is now present all over the company, an AI lab in Palo Alto, a bunch of new products, and a number of the things that today are BlackRock Digital Wealth. And could you explain a little bit more about the Digital Wealth team and where it fits into the broader BlackRock organization? So BlackRock has been a fintech company for about 20 years. People don't really realize that outside the industry or outside of our own clients. Um, we have a fintech platform called Aladdin that BlackRock built to manage its own uh, investment management and asset management operations. It's essentially an operating system for asset management. And that's been enormously successful. Uh, many of the world's largest institutions use it to help ensure that they can deliver on their pension liabilities as an outcome of like many, many processes that Aladdin supports. 
And we, there was a recognition in 2015, 2016 that as wealth managers, financial advisors were looking to have more of a portfolio-based approach, meaning they were more interested in communicating to their client about the outcome of a portfolio than just a specific product, that that same some of the elements of that operating system might be really useful in wealth management. And so uh, what BlackRock Digital Wealth is, is essentially software that uh, allows financial advisors and banks, wealth management firms, to better to build better portfolios. That means that we can automate a portfolio if they don't want to be making those uh, portfolio decisions themselves, or what's called robo-investing, it's similar to what Wealthfront, Betterment, uh, Acorns do for consumers. We also, though, have less automated solutions. So we have simple digital experiences that allow an advisor to say to you as a client, like, how much do you want to spend in retirement, and then deliver a portfolio outcome for you. So that's what we do. We, we build solutions, technology, that essentially delivers better portfolios in wealth management. And you've mentioned, you just mentioned that BlackRock bills itself as a technology company. Uh, I heard that Aladdin Risk, for example, for wealth management create, was created uh, through a hackathon. Could you talk a little bit more about that culture within you know, the financial services industry of considering yourself a technology company? Yes. So whether we are a technology company or not is a funny question. I think increasingly all companies have to be technology companies. Uh, we have the benefit of already having had 1,500 developers as part of our 14,000 employees um, because we have this sort of like legacy of having this, this platform. Um, but how do you foster a culture of innovation? I mean, to, to some extent, you have to have it in, you have to start somewhere. And we're lucky we had a strong starting point, point of like having people who have skills to build stuff who work here. Um, but then, you know, how do you foster an, an environment where people say, I have an idea, I think I can make something better, let me build it, and then it becomes commercialized? To be honest, we actually aren't that structured around that. I know a lot of companies, a lot of big banks have incubators. They have um, sort of internal competitions, not just hackathons, where there's like, oh, if you win, then you get vetted by these different senior executives, and then your idea goes through the next phase. And it's almost like they try to simulate, like, um, an elevator pitch competition turns into an angel round, turns into an A round, seed round or an A round, but within the company. We don't, don't do that. I think BlackRock's culture is really scrappy. Uh, just It's just in the DNA of the company. And so we have a bunch of hackathons. We have a bunch of innovation events. But I think the most important thing, and this sounds like a, this sounds like a vague answer, but having now a vague answer that when in business school I would have rolled my eyes and said, okay, what does that really mean? But now having lived it here for a few years, I think it's just so true. It really just comes down to the culture and the culture that the leadership uh, kind of reinforces. So, you know, you can call anyone at BlackRock and they pick up your phone call. You can be any level and say, I have an idea and someone will listen to you. And because we have um, pretty flexible virtual teams, it's not that hard to get resources to start to make an idea come to fruition. So the Aladdin Risk Wealth Management product actually didn't win the hackathon. They lost the hackathon. But in the process, enough people pay attention to our corporate hackathon, which is it's an annual event. It's global. Hundreds of team, uh, teams participate. Hundreds of products result from it. Uh, sorry, of projects result from it. People pay attention. And so if someone sees an idea that's relevant to their business, there are enough people across the company who have the ability to make something happen um, that, that every year something that comes out of the hackathon like turns into reality. And I want to come back to this idea of, of innovation. But before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit more about how BlackRock is viewing the future of wealth tech. 
obviously a lot of incumbents and new players are entering the space. Robo Advisors, Morgan Stanley, Vanguard, et cetera, are all introducing their own versions. BlackRock obviously is partnered and acquired um, a few robo-advisors. What is BlackRock's view of, of, of the future of wealth tech? Well, as a starting point, technology is table stakes in wealth management, right? The fact that you say, what is the future of wealth tech? It's not just about vendors that are supporting wealth managers. It's not just about vendors who are helping individuals make better financial choices. Like, it, the way that we the way that we plan for retirement, the way that we budget, the way that we manage our money, the way that an advisor builds a portfolio and manages their practice, like it is all it is all becoming tech enabled. And that might sound quite obvious now, but I think that's been a pretty rapid change over the past three years. So three years ago when we started doing, when we started bringing Aladdin to, to Wealth, um, and then when we uh, acquired Future Advisors, so Robo Platform, and started building what today is BlackRock Digital Wealth, we had to be really mindful that not all of our clients were begging for technology. Many of them were excited about its potential, but there was also a lot of anxiety. And so that certainly informed the way that we were developing product. Today, it's quite different. Today, as you said, there are so many, not only are there so many more startups, um, which is who are infiltrating all these companies, that that then has a powerful effect on the incumbents, as you said, who are like, oh, gr crap, like, what have I done? Do I need to be investing? Do I need to be building these things myself? Am I making the right choices? So I think the fact that it's table stakes uh, is, is, a, is important and meaningful change. Um, and the fact that technology is critical to the future of wealth management is like the sort of first obvious conclusion. Future of wealth tech, there's a lot of, um, a, a dominant narrative right now, and I'd be curious what you think about this, is that in fintech broadly, but perhaps particularly in wealth tech, the startup opportunity is to be a vendor and a partner, and that money is sticky to some extent, P particularly large accounts are sticky. And so for the next like five years, we're not really going to see incumbents suffer that much. Uh, in if their businesses suffer that dramatically because of technology, and rather they just need to be quick to partner. Um, with other with sort of startups who can help improve the client experience, deliver a better investment outcome. Um, it will be interesting to see how that changes as like our generation uh, can builds wealth and can move the market more. Um, our view has been that anything that democratizes investing around the world is good. And so, as you said, we've invested in a bunch of different fintech companies. We invested in Acorns because we believe really deeply in their mission. They're all about um, helping what they call the up and coming so that anyone can build wealth. Wealth just isn't for the wealthy, that if you start saving, you can build a good habit. Um, we invested in scalable capital in Europe. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of activity in Latin America, and there's certainly a ton in, uh, in China already in consumer fintech and a little bit little bit in enterprise, particularly in Asia. So I guess, in short, it's exciting. Um, I don't think incumbents are going away. I do agree with the dominant narrative that partnering today is really important, but we are constantly looking for people who are changing the way that people think about investing in, in wealth tech. And generally speaking, BlackRock, I think, at the most basic level, makes money both on the advisory side as well as on the fund management side, right? So as a consumer, for example, BlackRock will make money off of me based on assets under management, but also on the fees that each of those ETFs or whatever investment vehicle underlies that um, portfolio I'm invested in. So do you see going forward 
that the most important part will be the technology and the asset allocation, the portfolio allocation. Obviously, Aladdin is, is this big platform to provide for that service. Or would it be more on the selling funds themselves? So you're right. We, we actually make money in those two ways. And then also, as you said, we also offer software as a service, Aladdin. Mm -hmm. So we earn technology revenue. And there are rules about what product bias you could have if you are earning technology revenue. So we are we are very, very mindful of not going anywhere near um, any sort of kind of gray area. Uh, but we, we, look, we, we really do think that um, having a technology relationship with an investor, whether that's like an, an individual through their intermediary or the intermedi intermediaries, is critical to growing our business as an asset manager that we hear from our clients all the time. And our clients are big banks, the biggest wealth management firms, as well as increasingly sort of individual uh, RIAs, registered investment advisors across the country. They tend to make more interesting technology choices or more freely because they have less process. So they'll try new stuff. And so we actually find that we do a lot of our product development in that part of the market because it's just a faster cycle. Um, but we hear from them that they want more technology from fewer partners. So. And they already know us. They know that we know investments. And so it really kind of works together. Um, but you're right. Like, ultimately, as long as more people are investing around the world, which, and this is part of what I love about FinTech, like, it's aligned with your incentives in the business or aligned with the customer. As long as more people around the world are investing, that's good for BlackRock. Um, and for our business, our fintech business, which is helping create transparency in those investment decisions, we're hopeful that's, like, also good for the software business. I, this, the, we don't anticipate, if part of what you're asking is, we don't really anticipate that like the software business or software revenue will eclipse the asset management revenue. We today are less than 10% of BlackRock's, not BlackRock Digital Wealth, all of our technology revenue, uh, as you can hear in our earnings, is like less than 10% of BlackRock's overall revenue. My point is that it's like a really critical part of the overall kind of partnership we have with clients. And given that breakdown then, what does that mean for robo-advisors in general? Most of them are in the software. Uh, they're earning software revenue. Does it make sense to then introduce, uh, obviously this would be bad business for you, but would it make sense for robo-advisors to introduce their own portfolios? You're kind of seeing a little bit this, of this with Wealthfront, for example, introducing their, I forget what they're called, but their smart beta, essentially a risk parity fund. Yeah. Um, asset management's a great business. It would be reasonable to think it's you know uh, worthwhile to diversify. Then they kind of are flipping it. They become kind of tech-enabled asset managers. You sort of have to choose a little bit to some extent. Um, just you, I think you have to choose a little bit, especially if you're a small company, where you're placing your resources. But becoming an asset manager is no small feat. I mean, it's just a lot, there's a lot of operational complexity. There's a lot of risk. Um, I know when I look at the pain that we've imposed on a you know startup that we acquired just to get compliant with and sort of make sure that we feel comfortable as a publicly traded company um, that meets with all these regulators all the time, it's it's really hard and and, not, and in a significant investment um, to become an asset manager, and that you're then you then have that much more liability for all these little software bugs, so it kind of adds an extra degree of complexity to the messiness of building software that I would understand they may, as they get into it, not find as appealing as it might seem at first. That makes sense. That's a powerful moat to, to build around then. I think it is. I mean, it's easy to say today 
that it's not. It's easy to say, like, well, how hard can it be? I mean, there are elements of building investment products that are becoming democratized. There are certainly elements of banking that are becoming democratized, right? We're seeing, like, uh, debit cards as a service companies that are popping up, right? So, so that's making it easier for Acorns, for Robinhood to extend horizontally and add all these other services. Um, but and you're seeing challenger banks doing the same thing, right? Exactly. Like, all these challenger banks adding debit, like, right, every model line fintech company is now adding horizontal ser services so they can add more value to their customer and they become your primary destination for your financial life, right? If you're, if you want to be digital first, focused on millennials, but extending to other sort of demographics. Um, like, that's, what do you think? And Acorns is exactly like one example of that, right? Totally. They're focused on people who earn less than $100,000 a year and their model of charging only a dollar a month makes that sort of more more tenable and sort of it, it, that sort of defines some of the zone of who they go after. Um, so elements of being a bank are becoming kind of democratized, but but building investment product, managing the risk associated with it, owning that risk uh, is not what I don't know if, if companies want to get into it if, if they don't have to. There's a lot of other like wood to chop before they get there. So anyway, it's easy to say as you see that happening that like we don't have as much of a mode as we might have used to. We, we might have a few years ago. That's probably true, but um, look, there's a reason that all these big consumer tech companies like aren't really begging to get into asset management right away. There's a lot of other opportunity in fintech before you get to what we really do as our core business. And BlackRock obviously has made a, a few investments you mentioned before outright purchased a uh, future advisor, made large investments in iCapital, Acorns, personal capital. Can you walk us a little bit through the reasoning for most of these investments? What objective do you have? Is it a financial return? Is it learning more about these different verticals? Is it another objective? So we always care about the financial return, but one of the benefits of being a strategic investor is that you can choose investments where you know that you're going to add value to the company. It's going to allow them to compete in, in a really differentiated way. And you know that uh, that works both ways. So what I mean by that is every every company that we've invested in does something that we are not totally focused on doing today, either because it's a different customer, different market, different product. Um, in the case of InvestNet, completely adjacent services. Um, but they have a gap where we have expertise. And so by working together, especially when we have shared customers, by working together, we can just kind of do more. We, of course, care about the financial return. Like, there might be, we, you could see, um, I mean, if Acorns weren't a good business, we wouldn't have invested in them. If we didn't think that they were going to continue to grow and achieve a higher valuation, uh, we wouldn't have invested in them. Um, but that, as a strategic investor, that's like one component of your assessment, right? You sort of have kind of bounds within which you're comfortable, and then we have our own internal financial hurdles of what we think that's going to make possible for our business. So in the case of Scalable, you know, we're a distribution partner of Scalable Capital. Um, we help them build their business with clients in Europe. They're a robo-advisor in Europe. Uh, uh, we worked with them to uh, offer them to ING, so big European bank, um, and another one um, soon to be announced in Europe. And they have iShares on the platform. We consult with them on their portfolio construction. With Acorns, again, we are not direct to consumer. 
we have very little contact with the roughly four million Americans who have who two thirds of whom own less than hundred thousand dollars a year who use Acorns. But we work with them on their portfolio consulting. We work with them on content. A lot of what they do is educating people about uh, investing. And we have a we have a BlackRock Investment Institute. We have like a ton of content here. And they have Grow Magazine. And they grow exactly. And so we work with them to provide like our expertise, and it's their expertise that like delivers it in a way that's going to be accessible and meaningful for their consumers. Um, and how and much input do you have for operations within the companies that you've invested in that you don't have a majority stake over? We don't have majority stakes in any of these companies. We have board seats or board observer seats um, in, in almost all. In all of them, we participate in board deliberations. So I think we – look, we – I think having been an investor on, from a different perspective, uh, and I also worked at a venture firm, um, I think we are an outstanding partner um, in that we give so much. Like we deliver so much in free resources and help because we see these companies' growth as like critical and part of our strategy. I don't know any other minority strategic investor that really does that. Like we help them build their businesses, um, we collaborate on product development. Um, and so how much influence do we have over operations? You know, we're not we're not in there saying like hire this person, fire this person. Like we invest in teams we believe in and they should make those decisions themselves. But we're really involved in strategy. And there with each of these companies, there's elements of their strategy that where we are doing it completely in lockstep together. And could you talk about any challenges in terms of scaling operations of these smaller investments? Uh, I mean, plugging them look, into the BlackRock network, for example. Yeah, I mean, well, it's funny you say of these smaller investments. Like we have our own challenges scaling, scaling operations. Like it's not. What's one thing that's really been really interesting being in a startup within a big company is many startup challenges. You know, just because you have scale all around you doesn't mean you scale instantly. And sure, in our case, sometimes it's just in digital wealth. It's a matter of saying like, oh, we have this subscale process. BlackRock has a scaled process. Let's transition that. And we have that huge advantage, you know, relative to a startup that's like not within a, a, a large platform. Um, but there's a ton of stuff. I mean, everything from um, just managing portfolios. We, we help a lot with, with that, with uh, how to think about managing rebalancing portfolios at scale, how to think about managing risk at scale. Um, that's what Aladdin does. So we, we work with them often providing like risk transparency and analytics so they can understand sort of where, uh, where they stand, deliver the right outcomes for their um, clients. Um, what they're really good at that BlackRock does not do is scale distribution. So we have scale distribution in that our clients are, are big money managers, but we, uh, we do not have um, and are learning are building our own sort of like internal expertise in like reaching tens of thousands of financial advisors. That's like something that BlackRock Digital Wealth has started to do, um, but we hadn't really done before. So candidly, I think we probably learned some from like Acorns about scaled distribution. Um, but yeah, I mean, scaling process is a challenge everywhere, not just at a, at a small company. And many of these teams, I'm sure you've seen this as you've been interview interviewing people, most Actually, every single one of the fintech companies we invested in, the, the smaller ones, invested as a publicly traded company and not small, um, their management teams have a mix of people with tech backgrounds and deep financial, financial services, services expertise. So 
the CEO of uh, iCapital, Lawrence Calcano, was head of TMT Banking at Goldman Sachs during the first tech boom, and then he was a tech startup founder. Um, his colleagues all came from the alternative assets world. So iCapital digitizes the process of investing in a hedge fund or a private equity fund. And that is a, it's a total mix of people from like PayPal payments and people from um, alternatives asset management. Um, Noah Kerner, CEO of Acorns, has like a consumer background. His COO, Manning, spent over, I think, 15, maybe 20 years at JP Morgan and launched the Chase Sapphire card and did it in tons. So for the most part, these teams have expertise in scaling um, themselves. The scalable investment in, in Europe, could you talk a little bit more about differences in European versus American fintech investments, how you're thinking about diversifying the global portfolio? So you would think that being a robo-platform where your whole objective is to scale, your whole objective is to scale your platform, deliver, build an awesome product where people can easily see what they're doing with their money and then gather as many assets as possible. You would think that doing that in the U.S. would be easier because it is like a lot more money in one country as opposed to lots of different countries with different regulatory regimes and different banks. It turns out that actually, um, particularly if you want to go B2B, uh, in the US, the U.S. wealth management landscape and banks are all so different. They all have completely different tech stacks. Um, there are They have a different like potpourri mix of vendors that each partner requires a degree of customization. Um, and I think that's something that took their whole robo kind of field a little while to, to realize, ourselves included. In Europe, Scalable had the advantage that they had to do that from day one. So in a way, I think that um, they are really well positioned to to scale across Europe because they've already had to build in modularity into their platform and they already have had to accommodate and allow a certain degree of control at the client side or the partner side for like different regulatory and tax um, rules, for example. So anyway, so so they're really well positioned to kind of go across Europe, but we're constantly looking at new stuff. We're constantly looking at um, other partners in Europe. Um, this year I'm particularly focused on Latin America and India. Uh, and then China is, is challenging. I mean, it's challenging to operate as an, as an asset manager in, in China. We um, have pretty limited access, um, but we, of course, like pay a ton of attention to what's going on there. So 2019 is going to be continue the, the theme of partnerships, acquisitions, potentially? Yes. So, I mean, 2019 in our operating business is uh, – is really kind of building on our partnership with InvestNet. So InvestNet is a platform that does a bunch of middle office services for financial advisors. Um, they have over 90,000 financial advisors, so over a third of the U.S. market. Um, what we're going to do uh, this year is launch some of our digital products on their platform, and that will just create a better user experience, reduce friction. Uh, so our operating focus is that strategy in the U.S. of reaching more and more advisors where they are uh, so that we reduce the friction for them in building portfolios. Um, but absolutely, more um, we're, we're looking at more investments and partnerships. And what are some things to keep in mind for fintech entrepreneurs and operators who are looking to partner with BlackRock? Uh, you can send me an email. <laughs> um, tell me what you're doing. Uh, I guess if, if you're looking to partner with BlackRock, I mean, keep in mind that our world is asset management, right? That our world, like, everything we do is about the portfolio. So any business that is of interest to us as a partner or um, as an investment, 
helps further uh, that, that sort of objective of like building a better financial future either as a vendor because we don't do it ourselves or um, because, uh, because it's sort of like democratizing and growing the market for investing around the world. Um, I would say it's really important to not overstate execution. I know that that's probably true in all startup markets, but I think it's particularly true in fintech and in enterprise um, because you have so many other stakeholders, but your clients have kind of long time horizons and you have stakeholders uh, who have like regulators. And so I think it's really compelling. And I know when I was a startup founder, like, I just think about what I was projecting we were going to accomplish in crazy periods of time. And I think that being a little bit more moderate demonstrates maturity for teams um, and just inspires a lot more confidence for us uh, uh, that we have in, in them. Um, yeah. So you're a founder, you worked at a large company, you have your MBA. What advice would you give to other MBA students looking to break into fintech, choosing between larger companies, smaller companies? Any other things to keep in mind? I think that's a really personal decision. And I don't think that some people are better suited to startups and some people are better suited to big companies. I think it's more about where you are in your life and what kind of skills you want to be building and whether you want to prioritize, what, what just what you want to prioritize. Do you want to have impact at scale? And is that what's going to be most important to you? How patient are you? Uh, are you willing to take something from zero to one? Or would you rather arrive when it's at two and bring it to 10? Um, uh, and so I think that like really interrogating yourself about what, what you want to be accomplishing in the next kind of three to five years of your career is for, is was for me, and as I look back, I wish I'd done more of, would have been the best sort of strategy to determine between big and small company. Um, I think I, I think that this is going to be a really interesting space for our entire lifetimes. And so you kind of can't go wrong. As long as you're working with interesting, smart people who are willing to kind of push the status quo but are responsible, because <laughs> that's important in this field. Like if you join, right, if you're a part of something that like falls afoul of uh, the law, like that's going to affect your career. Right. And so it's important to be mindful of that in a way that's like not present in social media, for example, maybe now in social media, but like, but hasn't been in, in sort of a, in consumer tech. Um, and I, and I think that this is to just really focus on on the, on the problem that you're solving, and that's cliche in startup world, but I think in FinTech, we lump it all together, and the problems are really different and um, appeal to very different sort of sets of skills and interests. So for me, it was about how you, how you make the sort of like macro mission, and that's well-suited to asset management, but for other people, it could be like decentralization, right? And that's blockchain or cryptocurrency. So I think just sort of interrogating yourself about what's most important to you. Great. MC, thanks so much for the advice. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.